Right. So we're forging ahead in our series in the Psalms for the summer, and the summer is almost over. We've only got one more after today. But uh, I've heard this axiom before, maybe you've heard it too, that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And this, of course, sounds really nice, and it, it really feels like it should be true. It just makes sense to us that if, if, we, if we do all that God asks of us, then we should therefore experience his protection, his safety. Psalm 91 is a, is a favorite for many people. And in a time in history when we're living through a global pandemic, I've heard many cite this very psalm and, and pray it for people as a way to perhaps claim divine protection for them, to keep the dangers we face away. But is, is this how we should understand Psalm 91? And if not, how should we understand this and rightly apply it to our lives? It is God's word after all, and we should celebrate it and receive it with joy. So we're going to look at Psalm 91. We're going to use three points. We're going to first look at how this psalm is commonly misunderstood. And then we're going to look at how we should properly understand it. And lastly, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at how to rightly apply this psalm to our lives. How can we pray this psalm as believers? How can we pray this? How can we uh, apply it to our lives? So this is going to be a... uh, a wonderful journey through Psalm 91. There's some incredible truths here that we don't want to miss. And so without further ado, we're going to read Psalm 91 together. Uh, I'll read and kind of follow along, not together as in out loud, but I'd like to invite you to stand with me out of reverence for God's word, and I'll read Psalm 91 He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent 
For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him. Because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this psalm. What incredible truths these are. How comforting they are to our souls especially in hard times. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Spirit, Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Give us understanding as we look at your word together. May we properly understand its truths and apply them to our lives and give thanks to you, Lord, who are so faithful and so good. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So there are some who look at Psalm 91 and believe that it it supports a view that is sadly all too common in the West. This view would look at Psalm 91 as a guarantee, a guarantee of divine protection from any and all harms, from the traps of enemies, from the arrows, from wild beasts, from plagues and disease. They will not come near our tent, it says. Thousands will fall by your side, ten thousands at your right hand, but not us. Angels are commanded to guard us in all our ways. The condition, though, is that we simply must have enough faith to believe and to claim these promises. And some have, have wed ideas from the power of positive thinking movement with the scriptures, and they teach that our very words have power to create and to destroy. Just as God used words to create the world and we're made in his image, therefore uh, it's, it's natural some believe, that our words have power to call things into existence, especially things that we find in the scriptures that are promises. We should be able to claim those, and if our faith is strong enough and we speak it, then it should happen. This is where word of faith or name it and claim it teaching has come from. And so with the, with the measure of our faith and the power of our words, if we just claim a promise, it's ours, it's as good as ours. And those who teach this approach Psalm 91 with such great vigor. With the strength of our faith and the power of our words to claim and actualize God's promises in our lives. Psalm 91 can sometimes be misused and wielded as a magic wand to just drive away uh, any and all dangers and give us ultimate divine protection. As long as our faith is strong enough, it is believed, we will be protected from all of our enemies. No plague will come near our tent. Thousands will fall at our side, but not us. 
but not us. Angels themselves will guard our ways. And this sounds really great. It's something that we really want to be true. If we trust God, he'll protect us. We shouldn't get things like cancer. COVID will not come near our homes. If you trust God, then nothing really bad will ever happen to you. But is this how we should understand and apply these promises? I think not. And I think that to do so is a serious error. I think about the damage that this can cause. First, it breeds ignorant judgmentalism. You know, if, if any and all suffering is to be attributed to some secret sin that we're harboring, then anytime someone's suffering, there's something going on there that they need to repent of. Secondly, it, it heaps an even greater burden on people who are already afflicted. They're already down. And to come and say, hey, this is on you, is to kick them while they're down. There's three reasons in the scriptures that I want to point us to that, that points to the error of this thinking. And the, and the first one is that if you've ever read the book of Job, you would know that we cannot claim the promises of Psalm 91 in this way. A lot of things that Psalm 91 says won't happen to you if you trust God happen to Job. They happened to Job. Disease and pestilence attacked his body. He experienced tremendous disaster at the hands of his enemies. And Job's friends come along. You know the story if you've read Job. right? His friends come along and tell him, hey, you need to repent. Because all these things are happening to you because there's somewhere where you're not trusting God enough or where you're even harboring some sort of sin some secret sin. This is on you, Job's friends tell him. It's your fault that you're suffering the way you are because if Job, if you were right in God, if you're right with God, then you would have been protected. None of this would have come near your tent. None of this would have affected you. Can we really go to someone who has cancer and say, hey, this is on you? This is on you? You need to repent and trust God more? No way. No way. I I would even say that that's spiritually abusive. Look at the end of the book of Job. God brings clarity to the situation. He says to Job's friends, my anger burns against you. He's talking to the friends here. My anger burns against you because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So if you've ever read the book of Job, you'll know that you simply cannot read Psalm 91 this way. Otherwise, you are no different than Job's friends. If you read it in this way, God says to you, you are not speaking what is true of me. The second reason that we shouldn't understand Psalm 91 this way is because that's how the devil wants you to understand it. 
In the New Testament, Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and Satan actually quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12. It's found in Matthew 4, verses 5 and 6. He says, uh, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan's trying to derail Jesus here. And he he does this first by pointing to Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God. And then he claims divine protection from Psalm 91 for him in the here and now. If you are who you say you are, And this is what God's word says. You should be able to do this and you'd be protected. Satan's trying to derail us too because if we read any verse in the Bible that way, if we believe that if we're just trusting God enough that he's not going to let anything bad happen to us, Satan knows where this leads. And I think we can connect the dots pretty easily ourselves too. He knows where this leads. He knows that eventually you are going to experience suffering. He knows eventually you're going to experience suffering. And when you do, you'll either pull away from God because he can't be trusted. Because he didn't keep his promise. So we're either going to pull away from God or you'll turn on yourself for not being spiritual enough. And beat yourself up thinking, oh, if only I'd just believe a little bit harder had a little bit stronger faith. If only uh, my life was a little bit more perfect. Or maybe there's something wrong with me. The third reason we can't read Psalm 91 this way is just look at the rest of the New Testament and what it says about suffering in the life of a follower of Jesus. Uh, there are examples of or promises of suffering in every New Testament book. I compiled a list and I had to like pare it down because it just been too much, but I've got 10 quick ones for you. You ready? Uh, if you see some of these and you think that's in the Bible, you know, just write down the reference because I'm going to just read right through these uh, and go look it up later. Uh, but I'm just going to rifle through these just to kind of give you a summary, quick snapshot of just some of the things the New Testament says about suffering. The first is in Acts 5, 40 to 41. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. They beat them. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Romans eight sixteen to 18. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I'll stop there, right? That sounds really great and it's all true and it should be great and we should rejoice over that but look at the very next word. Provided we suffer with him. in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Or how about Philippians 1.29? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I don't see that on too many coffee mugs or t-shirts. 1 Thessalonians 3, 2-4. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Or 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 4.5, As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 1 Peter 2.19-21, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the New Testament won't allow us to read Psalm 91 this way either. But before we move on, there's one more I want to show you, something that Jesus himself promised his followers. And this is in Luke 21, 16 to 18. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head will perish. Some of you they'll put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. What does that mean? How are we to understand that? In light of Psalm 91, we're going to get there. But first, how should we understand Psalm 91? The first question we should ask is, who is this written to? Who is this speaking about? While this psalm does not officially um, have an an attribution, how do you say that? It's not attributed to anyone, we'll say that. 
The psalm's not attributed to anyone like to David or to Moses. Last week we looked at Psalm 90, a psalm of Moses. And therefore a psalm that's speaking about a Davidic king, that's not clear here. But I think this is the correct, correct way to understand this for several reasons. First, this psalm can be read as being written about a single person. All of the yous are singular in the Hebrew. And all of the other references are to a, a he, my, I. Secondly, the language used has a lot in common with other psalms of David. This is especially so when you understand the psalm as being directed to a Davidic king before he's going into battle. It could have very well been so that the, the priest would have used this psalm before the king goes into battle. There's language of battle here. Refuge, fortresses, rescue from traps of enemies, shields and arrows, Pestilence was always a concern on the battlefield and the tent that is mentioned in Psalm 91 could easily be understood as the king's military tent on the battlefield. Thousands fall by the king's side in battle, ten thousands at his right hand. John Eaton speaks for many commentators when he writes in his book, Kingship in the Psalms, he says, the individual on whom such promises are lavished could hardly be any but the king. Could hardly be any but the king. So if this points to a Davidic king, then this would ultimately be fulfilled by God's promised, anointed, forever king. Jesus. Psalm 91 is about Jesus, the anointed one. Thirdly, this psalm is, again, something that, that Satan knew, and he cites this because of Jesus' identity, in part. When he applies Psalm 91 to Jesus, he cites his identity. Satan begins uh, by saying, if you are the Son of God. This title, the Son of God, is a direct reference to the anointed king in David's line. If you are the anointed one, therefore, all of this should apply to you. And he was right. We see this in connection with Psalm 2. We looked at this earlier in the summer. Psalm 2 is also a psalm that points to the Lord's anointed king. And it says in Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that's about the Lord's anointed. So to properly understand the psalm, we must first see it as a psalm about Jesus, God's anointed king. So how does this apply to Jesus? Wasn't Jesus the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Wasn't he beaten? Wasn't he mocked and flogged and nailed to a Roman cross? If he's the Lord's anointed, how does Psalm 91 apply to Jesus? Jesus didn't experience the kind of divine protection that some claim Psalm 91 promises. 
So how did Jesus experience these promises? First, Jesus was the only one who ever lived who could actually say that they trusted God completely, as it says in verses 2 and 9. Secondly, look at God's direct promise to his anointed king in verse 15. He says, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Rightly understood, God is not promising his anointed that he will not experience trouble, but that he will be with him in trouble. And that he will be rescued in trouble, not from trouble. Jesus endured trouble when he fulfilled the promise of uh, Genesis 3.15. I'm sure that this is what verse 13 in our text is alluding to. Jesus was the promised seed of the woman, Eve, who would do battle against Satan and crush him underfoot. He's the great serpent crusher. And this battle brought Jesus to the cross where he achieved victory over Satan, sin, and death by his crucifixion, by his death, by his resurrection. And this is where Jesus experiences the promise of of Psalm 91. It's at his resurrection. At his resurrection, he experiences all the blessings and promises of Psalm 91. And further, at the end of history, when Jesus returns in power and in glory to do battle against the nations of the earth that have rejected him, nothing will touch him. Nothing will touch him. So we first need to understand Psalm 91 as as being about Jesus. So if Psalm 91 is about Jesus, God's anointed king, how do we pray this psalm? How should we pray it? How should we apply this to our lives? Because after all, it is scripture. So how does this apply to us? Look at Ephesians 1, 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now look at Psalm, look at Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All the promises of God are ours because of Jesus but they come to us only in him and with him. If we're in Christ and with Christ, then his victory is our victory. His victory is our victory. His resurrection was the first fruits of of what is to come for all who trust Jesus. There is a resurrection to come and all those who are in Christ will be given new, immortal, and imperishable bodies that will not grow old, they will not break down, get sick, or experience pain. No pestilence will come near our tents. We will not fear the arrows. With Christ, 
we will look with our eyes on the recompense of the wicked. A thousand will fall by our side, 10,000 at our right hand. This is what Jesus meant when he said that some of you will be killed, but not a hair on your head will perish. This is what he was talking about. Man may kill our bodies, but God ensures that we will not perish. God gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So how is it that we come to be in and with Christ? That's the question. If these promises are ours in a future resurrection, if we are only in Christ and with Christ, we need to know how do we become in Christ? How do we become with Christ? Verse 4 talks about finding refuge under God's wings. This is a common word picture used in the scriptures. You may have heard something like this before, but it's, it's uh, pretty relatable given today with all the wildfires out west. But there's, uh, there's been instances where uh, park rangers go in after the fire dies down and they find uh, a tree just kind of burned to a stump. And at the base of a tree, they find uh, a bird kind of burned to a crisp with its wings out kind of like this. And in, in one instance, the park rangers kind of, they kind of move the bird aside with a stick or something and they find three little chicks underneath who are alive. They run out from underneath the mother bird. When the heat came, the mother bird did her thing and let the heat come down on her instead of her chicks. This is the the word picture that's being painted here for us. In Luke 13, 34, Jesus, thinking of the judgment to come and longing to protect his people, he laments over Jerusalem. And these are the words, this is what he says in Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Jesus is applying this picture to himself and protecting us from the wrath of God. When Jesus went to the cross and died, he was like that mother bird burned to a crisp. His death covered us, taking the wrath of God that was due to us on himself. And now Jesus invites all who will come to come to him to come under his wings and to be found in him and with him. And the direct promises of God in verses 14 to 16 can be yours. God will ultimately deliver you from your enemy, sin and death in Jesus. He will protect you in Jesus. He will be with you in trouble if you are in Jesus. He will rescue you and honor you if you are in Jesus. He will satisfy you and show you his salvation in Jesus. But how does one come to Christ and to be found in him? Look again at verses 14 to 16. It's right there. You must know his name. Know his name. When the Bible talks about knowing someone's name, it's talking about their character. 
their person? Do you know them? Do you know what kind of character that person is of? So do you know the character of God, namely his love for you that sent Jesus to die in your place to pay for your sin? Do you know him? Knowing his loving name, you must respond. It says in our text, holding fast to him in love. By calling on him, it says, calling on him, asking you to forgive your sins. And the promise is that God will answer you. It's all there in those last few verses. The promise is that God will answer you. When you call to him, he will answer you and he will save you. The New Testament echoes this. Indeed, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a question of if or maybe. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And for those who are already in Christ, Psalm 91 gives us such rich promises in Christ, especially if your health is compromised. Maybe you have cancer or some other disease that's attacking your body or you feel unjustly oppressed by an enemy or you're suffering in any other way. And we live in a time where, I mentioned this before, the the global pandemic, and now there's talk of another wave with Delta, and the numbers are surging. And so what do we do? How do we live in such a time as this, in light of Psalm 91? Well, in 1956, you're probably familiar with the story, if you've been a Christian for some time, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were killed by a tribe in Ecuador that they were trying to bring the gospel to. Jim was only 28 at the time. Young, with his whole life ahead of him. He was killed. And his widow, Elizabeth, shares this story in a book titled Shadow of the Almighty. This is an insightful title for a story about a man who died an untimely and violent death. Because the shadow of the Almighty is taken right out of Psalm 91. Because to be in the shadow of the Almighty does not insulate us from suffering, sickness, or even violent death. It means something so much deeper. It means the assurance of our bodily resurrection. This is how Jesus received these promises. They came after his suffering and death at his bodily resurrection. It was then that he was finally and fully rescued from every attack and all suffering. This psalm never exempted Jesus from suffering as Satan suggested, but it guaranteed a final rescue from all trials. And it's the same for us who are in Christ. Remember, Christ's kingdom is here. But it's not yet here in its fullness. It is, in one sense, still yet to come. It's the same way with our salvation. We are saved, but not yet in the fullest sense possible. I put a slide together for this for you to see this, but 
we have been we have been saved. The New Testament talks about our salvation being past, present, and future. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved day by day from the power of sin, and we will be saved at the resurrection from the presence of sin, past, present, and future. And so some promises, like the ones found in Psalm 91, are for the future resurrection. Those are promises that we will realize in the future at the resurrection, but not for today. So as we await the completion of our salvation, remember Jesus' words in Luke 21, some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. And the very next verse says this, by your endurance you will gain your lives. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. While while we await the completion of our salvation, we endure suffering and affliction and persecution. And Psalm 91 teaches us that God is with us in our troubles. And in just a short while at the resurrection, all the blessings of Christ in Psalm 91 will be ours completely. Amen? Amen? They'll be ours completely. This is the message of Psalm 91. And this is the final slide here, if you want to put that up. This is the message of Psalm 91. Be found in Christ. This is how we apply it to our lives. Be found in Christ. Persevere with Christ. And receive all the blessings of Christ at the resurrection. Be found in Christ. Persevere with Christ and receive all the blessings of Christ at the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this great Psalm 91. Thank you for these rich promises. Thank you that Jesus, your anointed king, fulfilled all that was necessary to forgive our sin, to make us right with you. Thank you that he shielded us stood in our place, covered us, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God for us that we may be found in him and be with him. We thank you for the coming resurrection of our bodies. As we sang earlier, these bones will sing. We know that though our bodies may return to the dust, that they will yet again sing because the promises of Psalm 91 are sure, because you are a God who keeps your promises. And we know that your promise is secure because Jesus is the first fruits. He's gone before us. He's already experienced the resurrection that is yet to come for those who are in Christ. And Father, we pray for any here today or who are watching online, we pray that if they are not in Christ or if they are not sure that they are in Christ, that they would know it today. That they'd come forward and and talk with any one of us here who are in Christ and that we'd be able to uh, point them to you, Jesus, and to help them uh, to, to know how to call out to you, knowing that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, we thank you. We thank you that in this present time we persevere with you. You are with us in our troubles. And we look forward with great hope to a future day that will be here sooner than we know it. 
when we will experience the resurrection of our bodies and the mortal will put on immortality and the perishable will put on the imperishable and we shall be with you forever. Come quickly, Lord. We long for that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.